Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leo Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to The Opus. I'm your host, Paula Mejia. The Opus is a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony that re-examines an inimitable album's re-release and ongoing legacy. In this season, we're exploring the influence and intricacies of an album that continues to shape how we tell stories, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. In our prior episode, NPR Music's Ann Powers and the Lincoln Center's Jill Sternheimer joined me to talk about musical canons, what makes an opus, and how legacies evolve. In this episode, I'm speaking with two gifted songwriters, Kevin Morby and Beth Orton. Together, we're unpacking the distinctive way that Dylan unfurls his narratives within song, the model of confessional songwriting that Blood on the Tracks helped build, and what makes these heartbreaking tunes endlessly listenable. He told himself he didn't care Push the window open wide Felt that emptiness inside To which he just could not relate Brought on by a simple twist of fate My name is Beth Orton. I am a songwriter and a singer and I'm a huge fan of Blood on the Tracks and Bob Dylan generally. My name is Kevin Morby and I am a songwriter and musician. I'm doing a uh, recreation of The Last Waltz, and I'm actually the Dylan, which is um, exciting. That's amazing. What's the preparation been like for that? I've been practicing for a while. I was real nervous about it, so I've been practicing it. But it's almost like this like punk rock set or something. Like His part at The Last Waltz, it's like a freight train versions of each of those songs. They just kind of do it, and there's a lot of yelling, and it's, it's fast, and it's loose. It's like a lot of Dylan stuff you can kind of mess up but make it seem intentional or something. 
his stuff is so rhymy and his lines are just so, you know, meandering that I, you can kind of make something up and it'll totally pass as a Dylan lyric. This gets at a great point. The idea that Dylan's approach can sound messy and resonate as intentional. That's a rare and high watermark for any songwriter to hit, and it's especially true of Blood on the Tracks. By all accounts, Dylan's studio process for this album, particularly during the New York sessions, was fueled by something bigger than the music. In a recent Uncut magazine feature, Glenn Berger, the assistant engineer on the album, remembered the visceral first day recording at A&R Studios in the city. He said, Dylan would just start playing another new tune without telling anybody. We were racing to keep up. He's cutting idiot wind and just spitting this mean, angry, hurtful song, and it's so incredibly intense and vulnerable and real. And then he turns to us in the control room and says, was that sincere enough? I think it was such an intense emotion that he had to make some distance from it by making that funny remark. That particular version of Idiot Wind, a despondent one, much slower and without that groovy organ, didn't make it onto the final album. His lyrics in the song, Unpacking the Pressures of Fame, are no less biting, though. You close your eyes and part your lips And slip your fingers from your glove You can have the best there is But it's gonna cost you all your love You won't get it for money Idiot Win Idiot Win is a very brutal song. That's one of those songs where he just sounds so bitter. You're like, this guy's so bitter and he's so wronged by fame. And I was going through the track listing today just to kind of refresh on it before coming here. I was like, oh, I love this song, this song. And I'm like, the whole record. Every, every song is a standalone own pillar holding this gigantic record up. Idiot Wind is, is incredibly harsh. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that. No one would. But at the same time, he's fair. He's harsh, but fair. What can you do? I know the songs by heart, so I know the changes. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, they did that. Oh, he chose that lyric. Oh, he, oh my God, that's so bizarre. You can't imagine that there was ever any other way of saying it or singing it or playing it. It's so strange when you start to dissect someone like Bob Dylan's work because I wouldn't think to have that arrogance to do so. It's a bit like certain people you just don't touch. And to be having this insight into his process and into his lyricism and the sort of story behind his songs is illuminating. I've just always been moved by this record because it's hard not to be. But I've always thought of it as an incredibly romantic record. I've never heard it as someone having a particular like meltdown or like, oh, my God. You know, I've never found it shocking. And now I'm reading these articles and people are like, oh, my God, it was this incredible, brutal honesty. But to me, it just speaks of love. It's like, well, isn't that what it's like? I mean, that it's just like life and living and loving people. And it just speaks so clearly of that. I've been thinking so much about the way that Dylan strings together his lyrics yeah. and his music lately, especially with the release of more Blood, more tracks, like the bootleg of mm -hmm. Blood on the Tracks. And there's one song where he totally cuts out one line and just mumbles, and then he mm -hmm. says, hazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so I think like he really has this gift of keeping people totally tuned in, even when mm -hmm. he's not saying anything or he's thinking of his next line. Sure. Yeah, it's funny. When I think of his lyrics, the mental image that comes to mind is like a ribbon sort of floating in the wind. He obviously does have verse, chorus, verse, chorus structures to his songs, but it doesn't seem concrete. They all sort of create their own little world in this platform to kind of switch things around. And that's why it's fun to get into his live recordings and his demos and stuff, because he's, he's got so many different lyrics that he kind of swaps in and out. 
it's kind of like a fairy tale or something I think you'd compare it to. Someone like Leonard Cohen or something, I think there's a whole thought process behind every single word. It's more poetic, whereas Bob Dylan's is kind of the stream of consciousness that's really fun to get into. I had never thought about it that way, especially in comparison to Leonard Cohen, but you're right. I think that every word that he sings has so much weight to it, Mm -hmm. whereas Bob Dylan, there's more of a fluidity there. Like It almost feels like he's coming up with the words as he's singing them to you, even though it can be very intentional. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's almost people compare him to like a hip hop artist or something. And it feels like that because a lot of times it feels like freestyle. I'm definitely more influenced by that school of the stream of consciousness. What was your entry point into Bob Dylan? Growing up, they're all the classics like, you know, Lay, Lady, Lay. I have to say it was it was pretty much blood on the tracks that was like, oh my gosh, who is this? This record is my gateway drug into Bob Dylan. But actually, it was probably you're going to make me lonesome when you go. I think someone put it on a tape for me and and I thought it was one of the most beautiful songs I'd ever heard. I've seen love go by my door. It's never been this close before. Never been so easy or so slow. I've been shooting in the dark too long. When something's not right, it's wrong. You're gonna make me lose when you go. I was around 15 years old, and my dad had this boat. It was in the garage, and we didn't use the boat too much, but there's a tape player in it. And he had bought a lot of tapes at a garage sale or something, like this big box of used tapes. And I was fishing around those tapes, no pun intended. I was, I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was in the boat. I would kind of just go like hang out in the boat in our garage every once in a while. It's just like a, kind of a cool place to go sitting there. And I would listen to the tapes. At the time, I, I was just starting to get into like good contemporary indie rock music. Like I was into like the Mountain Goats and uh, the Microphones and Nutramilk Hotel and stuff like that. And I really liked that music. And I loved how raw it felt and that they were recording on home recording equipment. And I remember coming across that Bob Dylan tape and kind of looking at it, and it was, it's his uh, it's Greatest Hits Volume 1, which is the cover, it's just a silhouette of him on stage, kind of like a backlit silhouette. And I remember thinking, like, oh, man, his hair looks cool. Like, in my mind, he was always such old people music or something, and I, I never thought that there'd be any way I could like music like that. I put it on, and the first song I heard was Times They Are Changing. And I never heard that song before, and I remember kind of having that cinematic moment of sort of looking at the uh, tape deck as it was playing and just kind of being in awe. And from there, I just became super obsessed with him. And his first three records really blew my mind when I was in high school and they're what I listened to. And then when I was 18, I moved to New York. And on my third day in New York, I went to um, a show of uh, bands were doing acoustic performances on Roosevelt Island. And Dave Longstreth of the Dirty Projectors actually played. And he played a lot of Bob Dylan songs off of John Wesley Harding for his set. I went up to him afterwards and I was like, oh man, those songs were incredible. When did you write those songs? And he was like, <laughs> he was like, those were all Bob Dylan songs. And I remember thinking like, oh, I thought I was such a big fan. You know, I, I know his, his first three records so much. And he just was like, you got to dig deep with that guy. And so I think kind of from there, like 18 on, it's just each year, there's like another record that I become obsessed with. Something that's really exciting about being a fan of Bob Dylan is the sense that you can never quite reach the bottom of the well. Like there's always going to be yeah. another interpretation, another release, something mm-hmm. else to consider already within the massive trove that he has. I mean, last year it was all this, all the the spiritual stuff, and I got that box set, and then this year, yeah, there's more blood, more tracks, and it's just he's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, it's really true. 
he's allowing us into a process and I have I'm like oh that's so generous because it's allowing for fallibility it's probably in his mind he's like oh I could have said that and maybe it touched too much of a nerve sometimes and there's the odd line that he definitely changed at the last minute thinking no that's just too true and there's times where bravado probably kicked in and he was like no I'm gonna err on the side of bravado but the final record was bulletproof and to allow us in on the process allows us to see that he isn't bulletproof actually for the longest time i had the new york sessions and i remember someone put it on my ipod it was in those days which they'd never been released until now i think those sessions are incredible and those are kind of outtakes and so i knew that as the record as blood on the tracks for for years and then someone put the real version on at some point and i was like what is this what version is this that's so interesting that you say that because I've been thinking a lot about what true versions of records are. And I was reading this piece in The New Yorker about Blood on the Tracks about how the one that a lot of people know, which is the studio album, Mm -hmm. is not the true record because The New York Sessions preceded all that. And then he goes to Minnesota, plays it for his brother, and he says, well... Maybe you should think about you know yes. doing it a little differently, which is super interesting to me that that was the record that you knew. Yeah, I was. I felt very lucky to come into it hearing that version of the record first because I, I still to this day think it's more interesting, and that's why I like more blood, more tracks. I mean, I live for that stuff. Like as an artist, for example, I'm going to record a record here in a little bit, but I, I have technically already recorded it on my own. And there's something, there's just risks that you take. And there's things that you'll do when no one else is around or when you're not even quite sure that what you're making is even an album or something. But when you craft all the songs and you get them and then you go into a studio and you do it a certain way, you kind of lose a little bit of this magic. So when you are fortunate enough to have a recording that has captured that sort of magic, you can really hear it. And it's really exciting. What we hear on a studio album is so polished and so unlike what the process is actually like of of recording something. And I think that process is elusive to a lot of people who are fans of music. Sure. And I think that's why these releases can be so exciting to listen to because you'll hear take one and then he says something a certain way, rolls off the tongue a little differently. Take Mm -hmm. two, you can see that he's kind of playing around with language, like he's playing around with the way that he intones certain things. Totally. And that kind of makes you feel like you're in the room too. For sure. All those little... Not just mistakes, but those little nuances. They're priceless. They're awesome. She left here last early spring, is living there, I hear. Say for me that I'm all right, though new things come and go. She might think that I've forgotten her, don't tell her it isn't so. The more Blood, More Track sessions also reveal greater nuance, and it's not just in the way we can hear Dylan toying with word choices and alternating perspectives. The record's deluxe edition comes with a hardcover book, a reproduction of the notebook where Dylan wrote out the album's lyrics as he pieced it together. Combing through the 57 pages, you can peer at words that never made it onto Blood on the Tracks and that are wrenching to read. You can see the language unfurl in real time, in tandem with the maturing songs that would eventually comprise an album of two halves the rollicking Minnesota sessions, and the original devastating New York sessions. The New York sessions so brutal. Like you listen to it and it's like every line, like he's in pain singing about this divorce he's going through. And it's so, so good. Like I'm sure if you asked anyone at a record label, they probably hear from their artist all the time. You know what? I just want to record the record at home or I want like the most raw version. 
And they probably think like, yeah, we'll just let them think that until they don't think that anymore. Mm. If that makes any sense. Like I think that all the time. I'm always like, I'm going to do the record like this. I'm going to record it in a shed or I'm going to record it in a basement. And I do that and it gets the songs out in this way. And it's almost like therapy. It's like when you do something in the shed or in the basement, it's almost like going to therapy. And then you get that out and then you have this product almost. And you're like, well, now I can take this and make it look a little bit different. But it was important in the process that I I did go into the shed and kind of get it out in a certain way. I've always been emotionally invested in this record, so that's no surprise. And to hear he has other ways of saying something is no surprise. But what's interesting to me is the alchemy of the choices that get made in the last minute. That he decided to go with the versions he went with makes sense to me. Like I'm like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense that he didn't use that vocal and he thought that that wasn't the right vocal. Yeah, completely. It's too laden in what he's talking about. You know, like the gravitas needed to be lifted in order to let the lyrics have the gravitas. You know, the voice was too heavy for the weight of the words possibly or vice versa. And that to me is fascinating. Like I'm not so bothered about digging up his dirt like it's his business and I think as a writer you don't want people to take you literally because it's inhibiting to think that people are going to be saying oh well that's clearly about that because maybe it is and maybe it isn't but he's making poetry of whatever it is but what is interesting is the choices he made like lyrically and also emotionally the versions that he did change at the last minute there's such subtleties that he could have gone with and there are times where I'm like oh I should have kept that lyric that was amazing like then I'm surprised about certain choices weren't as brave as they could have been but who's to say you know whatever it's still incredible (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to be sitting I'm well he really should have kept that in I mean what was he thinking but yeah it is fascinating for years Bob Dylan has resisted the idea that blood on the tracks is a record documenting the dissolution of his marriage to Sarah Lowndes One story that's become part of the album's myth is the idea that these characters weren't figures from his own life, immortalized in songs like Buckets of Rain. Dylan has suggested that the people in these songs were based on Anton Chekhov's short stories. The Russian author is perhaps best remembered for his revelatory character building, people whom readers can find a sense of themselves in. The same can be said of the figures in Blood on the Tracks. It's tough to listen to songs like Meet Me in the Morning and You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go and not let your mind drift to your own past romantic dalliances and disentanglements. It's a brutally sad breakup record. To me, it is the breakup record. The top of top breakup record. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a couple other great contenders, but I think that one kind of came before them and it kind of set the bar. There's been times where I can't listen to this record because it hurts too much because it reminds me of whatever or whoever and... It's funny at the moment hearing it and really getting into the record again in a whole new light. I'm surprised how uplifting it is, actually. And there's so much cheek in his lyrics. Like, he's heartbroken, but he's still cheeky. And there has to be humor in that. I love his cheek, and I love that he's kept that in there. And so in a way, yeah, depending on the mood. And even in the depths of sadness, a song like Buckets of Rain, it's just beautiful. It's just the sweetest love song, I think, ever. These songs also definitely have a timeless quality to them, and they've inspired mm-hmm. gorgeous covers like the one you did of Buckets of Rain with M. Ward. Can you tell me a bit about how that came about? Well, we were working together on um, a record that never came out, and we both loved that song. And I think he'd started, and I don't know if we were listening to it together. I feel like it was his idea, and 
it's just felt really lovely to sing it and play it with Matt. And it's just a beautiful song, a beautiful love song. And it sort of met the humour that I found with Matt, which was just fun to sing it together. It was great. Life is sad, life is a bust. All you can do is do what you must. You do what you must do, and you do it well. I do it for you, honey, but can't you tell? For someone like me who, with every record I've made, there's always been like three versions that I've made before the final one. And someone who makes quite drastic choices along the way and does U-turns and people are like, oh, she's so indecisive. And it's like, yeah, fucking right I am. Do you know what I mean? Because there's a vision and there was moments where I chose to go deeper and there were moments where I chose to go lighter and I'm really happy with the decisions I made. Though any one of those versions that came before could have been beautiful too and had just as much weight and I love them. But in the end, it came together in that week with Jim O'Rourke that for me was the perfect combination of that alchemy. And in the end, I was like, no, that's the decision. No, that's how that's going to be. And I'm not going to sing those lyrics and, you know, cutting the wheat from the chaff and boom, there it is. But it is interesting that it is in those final moments that actually the instinct kicks in and has the last say. And it's funny when there's such depth to music, when there's the humour in the room and a bit of levity and it's a really good balance. And I think that's what I hear on Blood on the Tracks. And that makes it a timeless record, I suppose, because then you can live with it throughout so many changes because it follows you, it moves with you rather than dictating always. To deconstruct a perfect record in the way that we're being allowed to at the moment with total respect is incredible to be allowed into his process because there's definitely versions of these songs, you know, like, thank God he didn't go with that vocal. My goodness, that would have drowned out all the humour. Thank God he decided to be gentler with that song because it needed a gentle touch. And um, I'm glad that someone as genius still makes last minute ditches and goes no actually that that isn't right at all it's got to be this and it might be really subtle but it's so important when you listen to certain records and you hear people do certain things or take certain risks as a songwriter you might get to that point where you want to say something similar but you think like well maybe i don't want to do that maybe that's too confessional or something maybe that's too private but then you'll kind of think of examples you'll be like well no it's kind of like kind of like bob dylan's blood on the tracks i can do that he did it you know i think anyone who's an influence on me, they paved the way in some way for me to do similar things. Because, you know, all this stuff, music, people get into it because it makes us feel good. And it's it's just our own form of therapy. I think the edge that Blood on the Tracks has with that in particular is that I think he was very aware of how this was going to be received. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I don't think he would have pulled in a bunch of people in Minnesota to redo sure. a huge part of this record, too. Sure. That's a good point. And, you know, the New York sessions, they probably scared him how intimate it felt. And then he probably felt maybe he did have to make a record that just sounded more like a Bob Dylan record, you know, just more like a a rock and roll record or something. It's got to be scary to put yourself out there like that, to kind of forego doing any sort of metaphor or anything like that. And just it's kind of like standing up on a stage naked or something. Yeah. (laughs) Little red wagon, little red bike. Ain't no monkey, but I know what I like. I like the way you love me strong and slow. Taking you with me, honey, baby, when I go.
In the final two episodes of this season, we'll be exploring how the songs of Blood on the Tracks have lent themselves to cinematic interpretations, the resonance of the tracks' different versions and takes, and bootlegging culture. Be sure to check out our other Consequence Podcast Network programming at consequenceofsound.net, and if you like this show, we'd love to know what you think. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Here's a recent review from Apple Podcasts by Alex from the North. I'm excited for a podcast that features three sharp women music critics delving into classical popular music. I've only heard the first episode, and I already can see how this departs from what's been the norm. Frick, Wenner, Criscow, Pirellis, etc. have all had their say, and I'll cast no aspersions on them, but I'm hungry for this. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm glad to know our conversation left such an impact right out the gate. My guests rotate every episode, as does our focus with the record. Something I really hope to do with the opus is look at these records through a distinctly different lens to get a fuller picture and explore parts of these album stories beyond the ubiquitous. I really appreciate the review, and if you haven't had a chance to share your thoughts, please do. The first two seasons are a trial run, so to speak, so if you'd like to hear more conversations like these, please keep the reviews coming. Again, over on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. The cool thing about Podchaser is that it lets you rate and review specific episodes, so you can give your feedback as our focus shifts from episode to episode. We'll return in one week with our continuing journey through Blood on the Tracks. The opus is written by Paula Mejia and recorded in New York City at ACAS by Taylor Dalton and Tim Ruggieri. It's edited and produced by Kat Blackard and Michael Rothman. Our theme music is by Coach Hop. Hear more at coachhop.bandcamp.com. Series artwork is by Stephen Fish. Special thanks to Kevin Morby and Beth Orton for sharing their thoughts and time. Consequence Podcast Network. Borahe Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found.